DNS, DHCP, IPAM, and traffic steering delivered as SaaS, supporting your internal and public applications deployed in the cloud, a CDN, or your own facilities, serving your users no matter where they are. That is sponsor NS1 in a nutshell. Find out more about NS1 at ns1.com slash packet pushers. For your free account and some swag, that's ns1.com slash packet pushers. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone. Welcome back to the Full Stack Journey podcast, where we talk about the ongoing evolution of the IT professional. Thanks so much for listening. I'm your host, Scott Lowe. My goal today, as always, is to help equip and prepare listeners for their journey of learning across the full stack of technologies that are present in today's data centers and cloud environments. Joining me today is a longtime friend and colleague. We've known each other for quite a while. Um, dating back uh, nearly a decade, if I think about it. Uh, so uh, anyway, joining me is Duffy Cooley. Duffy, how are you, sir? I'm quite well. Yeah, I think it's probably, I think it's been at least probably a decade. Yeah, yeah. If I, you know, it's like the the early days of the NYSERA acquisition, which would have been, you know, like late 2012, right in that time frame. So nearly a decade. All right. Well, it's been, it's been a good decade. It's been awesome. Uh, you and I had a chance to work together at Heptio and then uh, after the acquisition of VMware. And now you're on to cooler things. Why don't you uh, tell listeners kind of, you know, a little bit about you, what you're doing these days. So my name is Duffy Cooley. I'm at Maui Lion everywhere. Maui, like the island I grew up on and Lion like the big cat. And so you can always reach me on Twitter and everywhere else. Right now I am the field CTO at Isovalent where I get to work on Cilium and eBPF and a field CTO's job in case you it's, it's a role that's new to you. It's basically... Uh, the way I consider it is more like a principal solutions architect role. So my job is a mix of uh, DevRel um, and, you know, doing shows like this and also a mix of ensuring that our, you know, customers are successful with the product that we're actually out there, um, you know, making work and then, you know, providing a good feedback loop between the way customers are using Cilium and uh, Cilium Enterprise and, and also uh, back to our developers and engineers that are working on all of that stuff. That is probably one of the best definitions of field CTO I've heard. And I've been a field CTO. So yes, uh, that's good. That's good. Uh, yeah, so I'm really excited to get into this. Uh, I have messed around with these technologies before, and so I'm somewhat familiar with them. But I really want uh, to to dig into this and provide some, some real sort of actionable information for the listeners so that they can figure out, hey, does this make sense for me? And where can I put it to work? And you know, what would the potential benefits that I could explore be? So uh, before we get into Cilium, I think it feels like we need to talk about eBPF first. And sure. so to help frame the discussion for the listeners, let's start with, you know, sort of what is eBPF at a high level and why do users need to care? Yeah, so I mean, to start kind of to give you a place to jump off with eBPF, I definitely recommend going to eBPF.io. It's a great resource there. Um, it has a lot of really great uh, beginner content. It also has a lot of links to basically what's happening in the space. Um, and from there, you can also find a link to Echo Office Hours, which is a weekly thing that I do, and links to the eBPF Summit 2021 videos that are available. Um, and but, but that's all just content that you can go and leisurely work your way through to get answer the question of what eBPF is. It's basically a technology that provides a more dynamic abstraction 
for what's happening for for that for that layer uh, um, at the at the at the Linux kernel that you know all of your applications and networks and all of the other things actually use, right? And so what I mean by that is that in that dynamic abstraction, we can do all kinds of interesting things. And I break it up into basically kind of you know a few different categories, but the first one, but, but a couple of them that are like immediately relevant to folks are things like observability. Um, because you're sitting at the kernel layer, you have a lot of uh, context about what's happening, whether the, whether that context is gained um, and, and made relevant uh, around like what's happening with network connections, whether that context is relevant around what's happening with particular system calls. So for example, if somebody were to open a file, you would see a system call that was open at probably. And at that kernel layer, we can see the open at and the arguments associated with that system call. So we have so much more rich um, context about what's actually happening right there at that, at that syscall layer with eBPF. So really, I think like the summary of it is it's like superpowers for Linux. A lot of people say that. I think really what that comes down to is the kind of the rich observability primitives that it allows you to uh, make use of. It's also the uh, rich ability to manipulate uh, data and system calls and packets and everything else that you can imagine that basically moves back and forth between user space, your application, and the kernel space. Okay. It seems to me that one of these, I guess, superpowers, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but it seems to me that one of these superpowers is the fact that this can be done... I, want to, I don't want to say dynamically, but that's the first word that comes to the mind And that, you know, traditionally in order to add functionality to the Linux kernel, it's been a process, right? You have to yeah, exactly. write the Linux yep. kernel. You got to get it compiled. You got to work with upstream to possibly get it included with the upstream kernel, or you have to distribute it separately. And, you know, and then once, once the system is booted, you can't really necessarily like you can load and unload modules, but like changing the nature of a module isn't really a thing, right? Whereas with eBPF, you know, you have sort of this runtime flexibility, if you will. Am, am I am I wrong there? Or? No, that's exactly right. Yeah, I mean, and in fact, um, there's this great cartoon that we have on that eBPF.io website that is actually put together by our CTO, Thomas Graff, and he describes that in exactly that same context. Say there's some particular feature or capability that you wish was possible in the Linux kernel, but isn't yet possible. Like nobody's written it and you know, written the module or written the, the the code necessary to inject that function into the kernel. Well, how, how would you go about it, right? Like prior to eBPF, the way you would end up doing that is either contributing the code yourself to the Linux kernel and, and going through the process of getting that code committed. And then that would now be in the Linux kernel. I mean, it would, I'm, not, I'm oversimplifying. It takes a lot of work to actually get something like that in. But say you actually, you know, everything goes super smoothly and you get it in there. It takes about maybe six months or, or something like that. Um, now your code's in there, but now how long do you have to wait for that particular Linux kernel to be made available to you, right? Maybe you made that like a module that isn't loaded automatically, right? This is a function that they, has to be turned on in the make file, like when you're actually compiling that Linux kernel. So it's quite a lot of work to your point to like get something from idea to like in people's hands when it comes to uh, Linux. And in fact, you and I lived that life with OVS, right? Like Years went by before we were able to get open vSwitch in the Linux kernel. Years. Yes. You know, yes, and it's in exactly. there now, finally. But yeah. yeah. And so with eBPF, because we're basically operating at that abstraction right there at the kernel layer, we can, you know, 
take the inputs, whatever the inputs are that you would actually be sending up to that Linux kernel, manipulate that however we choose to manipulate it by writing an eBPF program that is compiled and made available and, and hooked onto whatever your, whatever your input is, right? Maybe that input is when I make an open app call or whatever, I want particular things to happen before anything else happens, right? And so we can hook on that open, I can hook on that system call, make the things happen based on that eBPF program and then return it to whatever next, whatever's the next thing in line. Yeah, awesome. And I, to me, I, I mean, I know eBPF is capable of a lot, um, and we we don't need to dig super deep on this episode on that. Maybe on a future episode, we can we can geek out about it. But to me, yeah. the most striking thing about eBPF is that fact that you can do that without having to go through that big formal process of Linux kernel modules and all that kind of jazz, right? And that that to yeah. me seems like that's something you know that's just insanely powerful um and all right so with with that context in mind right now that we've sort of set this foundation of what ebpf is what is Cilium and how does it relate to ebpf i do want to put like a couple more notes into this piece of it because i think oh, yeah, it's very sure. interesting like one of the one of the things that comes up a lot when we start talking about these things right like so what you're telling me is that you have like effectively like a javascripty type thing that you can do with a linux kernel like is that rational like is that a good idea like how does that work you know, like, how do you feel like that's not going to be like an incredible risk inside, sure. of, inside of production systems in the world? Right? Yep. Like, yep. Um, and this is, a, I have to say that, like, you know, it's a, it's a very valid question. And it's definitely one of those things where people, I think, uh, like, that's their first knee-jerk reaction when they start learning about eBPF and starting to dig into what's happening is they're like, that that's crazy town. We should not, we should not do anything with it, right? Like, we should, we should definitely not, not touch that. Um What's, it, what's good with one of the things that people, I think that we're doing an area, a decent job of communicating within the eBPF community is that eBPF code is actually very limited in, in its ability to, uh, in, you know, in, in the types of programs that can be compiled for eBPF programs that are injected in your kernel, right? And there are a whole set of constraints that that, app, that that program has to fit under to even get to the point where it can be compiled. eBPF has this thing, that provides like sanity checking for those things. So we're limiting on we're limiting things like loops. We're limiting quite a lot of functionality. You have to have like a very uh, finite program that will terminate and that isn't going to run forever. And that ha and that has and goes through a, a very uh, intense checking process to ensure that like like the eBPF programs that you write are going to be um, not a danger to the Linux kernel. And so. For the most part, like I think the general opinion of the EBPF community and, and my, certainly my opinion is that EBPF programs are safe because they have to go through this process before they are injected into the kernel, right? And we do a lot of development against the thing that the, the sanity checking of programs to ensure that those programs are safe going forward. And as vulnerabilities are found, they're resolved, et cetera, et cetera. I get to work with like a number of kernel developers here at Isovalence that are focused on exactly that work, right? Like making sure that upstream in the community, as you know, as issues are found with eBPF, we resolve them, commit them back to the code base and in, in the Linux kernel, and and move forward. But yeah, so eBPF programs are safe. It's actually kind of very difficult to write eBPF programs for most folks because of the sanity checking that is involved, and. And for the most part, I would say, like as an entry point, just as a quick aside, we're going to come back to this point later in the show. But if you were, if you wanted to get involved in it, if you wanted to play with eBPF, the right way to start is to look at something like BCC, or if you're playing with Cube, if you're playing with Kubernetes, something like Kubectl Trace. Um, but tooling like that that basically gives you like a material way to start and start playing with things. 
without having to actually write eBPF code directly. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. Two great points. Um, one about the safety of running eBPF code in the kernel, um, because there are, as you pointed out, a number of constraints and limitations on what you are able to do. Mm-hmm. I guess my point about it being powerful is just the fact that it is it sits at this this juncture point of having visibility, you know, into all these things and can do operations within the constraints that it's uh, it is uh, held to. Um, yeah. But but also for for users who are interested in getting started, that that way of like leveraging something like kubectl trace um, or other tools that use eBPF under the covers without you having to go write eBPF bytecode, that's a great way to sort of like ease yourself into the ecosystem. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So now, tell us about Cilium. I think the way to conceptualize what Cilium is is for me just to back up for like one second and talk about a CNI, right? So. A CNI in Kubernetes is a container network implementation, and it's responsible for ensuring that pods inside of Kubernetes can communicate. It handles it handles like all of the low-level bits, all of the heavy lifting to make it so that these things work. And the way that a normal CNI goes about this, right, is that when you create a pod or um, on a kubelet, or when, I guess I should say when the kubelet creates the pod, a part of the call for that, a part of the call stack for creating that pod is that it calls out to the container network interface and says, you know, wire up the stuff that I need to give this thing an IP address. And that, cont- and that CNI might do a, a simple, a, a set of steps that are um, very specific to, to CNIs in general, right? So they, it will start by creating a VTH pair. If you want to know about, more about VTH pairs, you can check out Scott's blog. He's written like a whole blog on it, like everything else. Anyway. Um, so you create a VS pair and it associates one half of that pair with the network namespace that your process is going to reside in when your pod comes up. And it keeps the other side, the other side of that VS pair associated with the host network namespace, the system itself where the kubelet is running. And then it might manipulate IP tables, right? Maybe you defined a network policy that says you only want this pod to communicate with other pods within the same namespace. And so we'll inject a bunch of IP table rules that allow only this this IP address to only communicate to the other IP addresses for the other pods that are within the same network namespace or within the same namespace inside of Kubernetes. And then we'll also probably turn on some form of encapsulation to allow for for packets to move back and forth between nodes as pods are communicating between nodes, right? So that might be VXLAN, that might be Geneva, that might be a number of different things, but, but basically we're allowing communication back and forth between these things. And this is all the domain of your CNI and generally how most CNIs work. With Cilium, it's a bit different. Um, we're, because we're actually an eBPF-based CNI, we, um, we do a lot of our work in eBPF programs. And that means that in a traditional CNI, when that your application, your web server or your client application, what have you, makes a call to another application within your Kubernetes cluster or outside the outside in the world, what happens is that packet traverses that VTH interface. It lands in the underlying host routable router space. It might go through some IP tables rules there, um, be manipulated. Perhaps there's like some natting that has to happen, or you know. Um, you're actually trying to access a cluster service. And so there has to be some mapping between that cluster IP and some healthy endpoint on the back end. And that's generally how that would work. We're doing all of that in eBPF programs. And so we hook on something like connect or TCP open. And when we see that system call happen for a process that we're watching, right? For what's happening, you know, whenever any process is spawned within a container, 
within a pod, we're able to see that process and understand that it's happening. And so we hook on TCP open and connect. And when we see those connect calls happen, then the eBPF program kicks in and we can make really intelligent decisions about what to do. Um, in that connect call, we can say, okay, well, you're trying to connect to a service IP, just like we would, just like the, the underlying, the regular CNIs of the world would do, right? But in this case, like we can actually make the packet manipulation, you know, where, where most folks would do this with IP tables and leveraging cube proxy or something like that. We can actually do that packet manipulation right there in eBPF code happening at the kernel layer. So when that open call happens and you're trying to access a service IP, we're able to determine like what are the list of healthy endpoints that from a map that we already have uh, made available to us via the Cilium CNI. And we pick one of those healthy endpoints, we manipulate the destination IP address and, and we let that packet down into the stack. And that packet traverses the reads pair, figures out what it's going to go, where it's going to go next. And off it goes, you know, to the other node or to another pod on the same container, on the same node, et cetera. And that, and and in that, right, because we're actually watching and really understanding what's actually happening at that connect layer, we're also able to emit and, and observe network uh, events in a way that is very different than a lot of CNIs can do. Right? Okay, we can actually show you like where you are in the TCP, um, in the TCP handshake for every packet that goes back and forth between this pod and another pod. Right? We, can we can give you an interface that looks very similar in some ways to TCP dump, but contextually shows you that, that same context for across all of the pods in all of your cluster. Right? So you could say TCP dump, I mean, you, it's effectively, it'd be Hubble observe dash dash namespace, and then the namespace in which your pod resides. And you'd be able to see all of the communication for all of the pods running inside of that namespace, regardless of what host they sit on, which is what differentiates this from things like TCP dump, right? This is more a global context. We have a more, a more complete view, a holistic view of what's happening. And in that data, this is the other big difference between the Cilium and like what we see in some of the other CNIs. In that data, we can give you a lot more rich context. When that pod comes up, we associate it with an identity. And when that pod has an identity, we can actually um, ensure that when we emit a network event that you're observing with Hubble, that we can give you the context that you need to understand what actually happened there, right? Like, I know that it was this pod IP and it was trying to talk to that service, but is pod IP really the thing you wanna key on? Or do you actually wanna know that it's this pod running on this node that was, had this set of labels that was actually affected by this network policy? I mean, there's a lot of, relevant data that you would want to see in something like an observation an observation tool. And we can actually expose all of that. We do expose all of that information with Hubble. I interrupt this podcast for a look back and a look ahead with sponsor NS1. Let's look back first. When I was the hostmaster for a regional ISP, I would build zone files for my customers by hand in bind using VI. The bind server didn't have much in the way of intelligence. Bind just served up the A records and the C names, et cetera. And we hostmasters would observe things like transactions per second and query response times. And those were our success metrics. Woohoo! And 20 plus years ago, that was fine. 
But as we catch up to today, you're going to want actual intelligence in your DNS, which is what NS1 gives you. You stand up your NS1 account in the cloud. It's a SaaS service and do your configuration like you'd expect. And then NS1 can make sure that as client requests come through, they get handed off to the server that will give that end user the best experience. How does NS1 deliver this? Well, NS1 is globally distributed and they take measurements from everywhere. Billions of measurements on a variety of metrics and all that metadata gives intelligence to the DNS routing decision. Let's say your application delivery stack is all over. A variety of public clouds and some of your own DCs or colos and some CDNs that you're using. NS1 is what you're looking for to squeeze every ounce of performance between client and server from your apps. So if you're supporting that sort of an organization, the cloud native org, right? Then the answer to your next question is yes. Well, what was the question? Does NS1 support automation in my pipelines? You know, all the DevOps stuff. Yeah, absolutely. NS1 is a Terraform provider, a well-documented API that's public as well. In fact, you can go to their API docs. It's all public. You don't even have to climb a reg wall. There's more NS1 stuff that we could talk about. For example, NS1 has partnerships with Catchpoint, ThousandEyes, Datadog, and Ansible, and more. And there's some other really interesting use cases like their VPN traffic steering one, which really captured my attention. NS1 also works with some of the biggest infrastructures in the world, like eBay, Dropbox, Salesforce, LinkedIn, and more. And if they can support those guys, I mean, I think they're certainly worth putting on your DDI evaluation list. For more information, visit ns1.com slash packetpushers. That's ns1.com slash packetpushers for a free account, and they'll even throw in some swag for you. ns1.com slash packetpushers. And now, back to today's episode. I want to I wanna talk about the identity thing a little bit because I, I know that identity sometimes can mean different things to different folks, right? You know, sometimes when we talk about identity, we're talking about things like, you know, spiffy, right? Um, but it sounds like in this case, we're talking identity in terms of context in relative to, you know, your environment. Like it's, it's, uh, as you said, it's this particular pod on this particular node with these particular labels, um, you know, and, and communicating with this other particular pod with these particular labels. I mean, is, is it just the association of all of the higher level Kubernetes content or is there something else going on there when we talk about identity? Yeah, at this time, it is actually a union of labels that, that is used to create um, a union of labels, which is used that is determined to be unique for that particular set of pods. And that, um, and those pods are associated with an, a, a specific identity. Right? And so at that point, like we can actually use that identity value, that integer that we associate as an, as an identity for that pod as part of the eBPF programming. Right. So when we're building it when we're um, satisfying things like network policy, or if we're trying to set, you know, um, whether it be like normal network policy that you see in Kubernetes all the time, when you say, you know, this, uh, these pods can communicate to other pods within the namespace, we can identify those pods by their identity and and build the program based on that primitive. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. And, that, and that's powerful. I mean, you know, one of the, one of the interesting things that comes out of, if you're in a Kubernetes space, one of the interesting things that comes out of working with tools like Service Mesh is often this sense of identity, typically accomplished via mutual TLS and sometimes using things like spiffy service IDs um, to yep. be able to say, this is how we know that this application or service or component is who it says it is and therefore should be allowed. And we, we you take the whole 
access list concept up from a, a network identity as in an IP address, which in Kubernetes especially is ephemeral or can be ephemeral up to something much more usable. You know, it's the front end service or it's the back end service or, you know, it's the gateway service, whatever the case may be. And so having that ability, now you're doing that with a, a set of, you know, labels, right? Establishing an identity and being able to then kind of up-level the, the awareness of how you filter or block or accept traffic on that information as opposed to an IP address that may change or a range that exactly. may, you know, yeah. alter or whatever the case may be. That's, that's cool. Yep. I mean, and, and there is, there has been some burgeoning effort to make uh, Spiffy the implementation for how we, for, for the identity itself. Um, I think there hasn't been enough demand like for us to actually drive that through in the Cilium product yet. Um, but there is a, but there is a straw man for it. I mean, like there is a, um, a proposal for it. And if that's something that you're interested in, you probably could, you know, jump in on the, on the Cilium open source project, which is now an incubating project in the CNCF. Um, but yeah, let's, it's, you know, it's, we're not opposed to it. It's just that it, the implementation that we have right now uh, works pretty well. We haven't had a need to change it. Yeah, no, I totally get that. I, and I mean, the fact that you can establish identity is really the important part. The mechanism that you yeah. use for now is not, you know, like it doesn't have to be one or the other. It's really the fact that you can establish an identity. And then once you have been able to establish an identity and have, uh, have that throughout you know, the domain where you're enforcing policy, then your policies become a little more sort of human readable, right? You're not thinking yeah. about IP address ranges or this or that, the other. you're saying, I want my front end application to talk to my back end application exactly. to talk yeah. to my database. And I want them to communicate on these ports or, or use these services. Right. Um, so that's, that's the important part, right? I think uh, you, uh, yeah. listeners you, in, in the event you're not familiar with Spiffy, I'll have a link in the show notes to Spiffy, but it's, it's basically something that Joe beta launched, I think before he started Heptio, if I'm not mistaken, trying yep. to bring a, an identity framework for, uh, exactly what we're talking about. And, and so there's lots Sur of interesting service things production happening. identity for, for everyone else. Yeah. Right. Um, so you mentioned earlier, uh, observability, you know, and, and most CNI plugins are, are, pretty laser focused. They're just, just worried about connectivity. They'll rely on some other tool to provide mm -hmm. observability. Right. And they may take on security or they may not, you know, right. like, I mean, different CNIs do different things. Sure. Sure. Yeah. That's fair. Some of them offer, you know, support for network policies and therefore can do some of this filtering that we're talking about. Some of them do not, you know, as far as observability goes, you know, I, I kind of get the relationship, but I want listeners who, who may not be as familiar with Kubernetes to, to be able to, kind of put this in the landscape, if you will. You know, when we talk about observability, most people often, the, the word that often comes out of somebody's mouth is observability, blah, 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 Prometheus, right? <laughs> and, yeah. you know, we're talking about scraping metrics and this and that and the other, right? Um, you know, where where does the observability that Cilium provides by virtue of its use with eBPF and where eBPF sits in the kernel, um, where does that sit rel relative to Prometheus? Like, are these complementary? Are they not? Like, what's the story there? I guess our answer in Cilium is really pretty much yes, right? Like, I mean, like it's, and, and let me break that down a little bit and, and, and talk about why I say that. Um, with observability, I think it's an interesting misnomer to completely associate uh, Prometheus with observability. Observability is like a little bit more than being able to expose things like metrics. Um, 
observability is generally, you know, like the tool that you will use to understand or to, to have a better view of the unknown unknowns versus the known unknowns, right? Prometheus and tools like this are really great tools for known, for known unknowns, right? Like you, you know that like, it's likely that when your application makes a connect call to some other application that you want to measure how much time that's going to take and graph that. That's a known unknown. You don't know how long it's gonna take for this application right now, but you do wanna graph that. You wanna know that over time, right? Observability is a little deeper than that. Observability is like, you know, tracing and, and tooling like this that allows you to really kind of dig into, okay, what, but what really happened? Like, give me a view of actually, you know, give me a, a more, a uh, wide ranging conceptual view or contextual view of what's happening with a particular flow through the system and that sort of stuff, right? And this is definitely one of the areas that we jump into. So with Cilium, we provide a number of different observability models, if you will, right? The first is that tactical model that I was just referring to uh, by, by Hubble, right? Hubble is an open source, is part of the open source distribution of Cilium. And it gives you a tactical view of what's happening with network event traffic or network event data on, on your net, on inside of your Kubernetes cluster. And it can be configured to even give you even more um, uh, observability based on, on particular filters or particular network policies that you define within your cluster. Like we can turn on things like, um, so by default, we give you like all of the traffic that's moving back and forth between any pod and any other pod or any pod and any other external entity. Um, but we may not like expose the FQDN that you get, uh, you know, that is being used. For that, we would kind of want to see a little bit more about what's happening at the app level. And so Hubble has what we call fine-grained sensors, right? We have the ability to turn on more observability. And you can see this in the Cilium docs where you basically uh, enable um, for a given namespace or for given sets of pods or what, or what have you, the ability to increase the visibility and you'd be able to see the DNS queries and the responses, right? You'd be able to see the FQDNs that particular entities are communicating with. And we do this by, by just basically defining a network, a Cilium network policy that increases the visibility for that, right? So now you're just, again, just increasing the tactical visibility for this. Now, strategic visibility. I want to know what happened a week ago, 90 days ago. At this time in this namespace, what was going on, right? That's more strategic stuff. I want to know, like, from that perspective, what's going on. Now we're getting into the Cilium Enterprise features. We have functionality that allows us to emit all of that network event data into an S3 bucket, for example. And then we have a product that's called Timescape that can be used to... Um, to model that data such that Hubble can actually point at that data set instead of the, the more temporary data set that we could use more strategically with the open source product, right? With that feature, you can say like Hubble observe dash N namespace a week ago between this time and this time, show me the traffic. I mean, and, and you get to all, and you have all of that rich context about what's happening or what happened, I should say, a week ago and have that view, right? Um, Further, we're actually really going, we're, we're kind of targeting some of the more interesting use cases that we see people using service mesh for, because we realize that the efficiency that, the efficiency to be gained in doing a lot of this uh, work at the kernel layer with, with eBPF is, is pretty, pretty compelling when you think about it, right? And so what that means is that from the observability perspective, we're working on a number of different things 
with the open, with the with the project. One of them is that we're looking to enable auto instrumentation of applications um, in the same way that you might see a lot of the other service meshes doing it. Right. So giving you TCP golden metrics, giving you HTTP golden metrics, being able to expose that as a Prometheus endpoint that you would be able to then graph in Prometheus the way that you would norm that you that you would see with other service meshes. And the super compelling part about that is that, I mean, if you think about it, like that Hubble Observe piece that I've already discussed, it, we have all of this data, right? We have all of that context. We have the ability to understand, like, was the HTTP response code to 200 or 400, what have you? Like, we can see all of that, right? Um, we just haven't exposed it as a metrics endpoint automatically for particular applications. So this is so this is like the extension of that functionality now. Like a, that is another increase in visibility or observability, I should say, that we're that we're working on at Cilium. And then lastly, the um, so we have tactical, strategic. We have you know auto instrumentation of applications and those sorts of things. And then the uh, another piece that we're working on is the ability to emit not only network events but also process events. Right? So we're building in things like the ability to give you a view of a process tree, a process tree ancestry, and a visualization, and also just uh, emit process events in a way that allows you to understand when our pod comes up, what are the processes that are running into it, what were the arguments that were used to start those processes, have any late comer, has have any processes started after the pro after the um, the pod has started up. Like what are those late processes that it started up? Are any of them like interesting? Are they making calls? Which process in a given pod made that FQDN call to reverse shell.com? Which one was it, right? I could tell you that because we're actually emitting process event data and to increase the observability that we have for all of those things. And because we're just operating happily at that kernel abstraction, leveraging eBPF, we have all of this context already and we're just coming up with novel ways to um, ensure that that context comes down into user space and gets uh, made easily available to a lot of your production environments, but leveraging either Prometheus or your SIM, like your Splunks, Elastic Searches, those sorts of things in the world, or uh, or leveraging Timescape, which is like you basically put all of that event data in an S3 bucket and use tooling like Timescape to evaluate that. I like how you um sort of separated you know metrics which is what we're looking at with you know prometheus lord manager Rafana, where you're just saying there is a particular thing that i want to count and you know i know what that thing is and i want to count how many things that how many times that thing happens right versus sort of the deeper level of observability that you're looking at when you're saying well i want to not just look at how many times this particular http response code gets in but i want to look at you know the length of time that it takes, you know, to go from here to there and the response to come back and, and where are the, you know, where are the long parts of that, so to speak, as it traverses gene, because you've got that visibility into sort of all of that. Um, and so that yeah. makes a lot of sense. Um, and I think listeners who are a little more familiar with Kubernetes and sort of the pieces, they'll immediately begin to grasp that. Um, but I could certainly see where somebody who's listening into this podcast and who's not spent a bunch of time in there would be like, well, this is, you know, they're all doing the same thing and they're not, they're not really like it's sort of different levels no, of no, no, no. how deep you want to scratch to get deeper into that versus just kind of surface level, you know, uh, information. It's definitely one of those overloaded terms. I, you know, I have a lot of respect for, um, 
the folks at Honeycomb, I feel like they're doing incredible work and, um, around like defining like what, um, what observability like should mean, you know, like, um, and like, and why observability is so much more interesting than monitoring. Um, and like what the, and what the secret superpower behind observability and those things are. Um, you also see, uh, like folks like, uh, pixie.dev or px.dev, which is the, the a new open source project called Pixie that leverages eBPF to do a lot of this profiling and uh, profiling of applications so that you can gather more context about what's happening within your application without having to change your code, right? I mean, this is this was sort of the promise of a lot of the service meshes that are out there. But um, but yeah, having that, having, like, I feel like we're definitely coming into that age of context. Like we need more context about what's happening in these in these more complex environments like container orchestration systems like Kubernetes and those things. We've always needed it, but now it's actually like now with EBPF and some of this other new tooling, it's just so much more possible than it's ever been. And it's great. Yeah, there's a lot of exciting things happening. Um, so I know we're we're moving along in our time frame here. I want to make there's a couple of things I want to make sure that we get to. Along the way, we've been talking about things like um, you know, network policies and blocking traffic and allowing traffic and that sort of thing. And and I know that Cilium supports that. And like some other CNIs also has its own form of policies. That's right. Um, uh, represented in Kubernetes as uh, a CRD or a set of CRDs, um, custom resource definitions for those that don't immediately recognize the acronym. Um, you know, what's the, I mean, a, I think we've kind of already answered this, but just to confirm, like the differentiating feature there is the fact that you know you've got this identity, you've got this visibility into the context of what's you know what's asking for what, who's connecting to whom, that sort of thing. But is there something else that sort of differentiates the Cilium's network policy functionality compared to some others? And we don't necessarily have to you know mention any others, but like, is there any yeah. special sauce here? Yeah, so Cilium, so Cilium network policy is a superset of, of Kubernetes network policy. And this is true of a number of other uh, CNIs that are out there. Um, the difference, uh, some of the stuff that we bring um, in, in network policy that you don't see in other, in other cases are um, the ability to do things like FQDN um, policy. So you can actually say, you know, I want to allow particular applications or a set of label, a set of namespaces by label to have access to particular FQDNs or like an entire sub or an entire subdomain or a domain or what have you. And then we would allow that or deny that and give you that observability to allow you to audit to ensure that that's actually working the way you expect. Um, we have the uh, a number of other pretty fun capabilities. Like I was actually just playing with one recently that is a chaos capability. So you can define a network policy that enables you to um, inject fault or delay between two between two services and that's kind of fun um we're working on things like uh, egress load balancing so enabling you to define um, a particular static egress uh, host that you would use to that would your, your trap your pods would use to egress traffic from your cluster for the most part, like in Kubernetes, if you haven't done anything special, then what happens is when your pod wants to reach google.com, the pod traffic comes down to the node, it gets added over the node's IP address, and off it goes to google.com. And when it comes back, it comes back to the node and then back up to your pod. Um, 
and that's oversimplification, but we're going to go with it. And then the other, um, uh, the way that we can, the, what this capability brings is the ability to define a network policy that says, when you're going to a particular FQDN or a particular range of IP addresses or what have you, however you want to classify that traffic, right? And by some label selector for pods, right? These pods, whenever they try to reach this particular service, I want that traffic to egress a specific egress uh, a service that is hosted on some node that could be a it could be a kubelet it could be a standalone egress gateway but that gives you the ability at that point to solve like real problems in in kind of older infrastructure problems like banks and big businesses right where i have a discrete firewall that has the ability that has to understand the identity of that traffic and all of the only tool i've ever used was is the source ip so Give me tools that actually help me overcome this, and so this yeah, is yeah. one of those tools that overcome. That, that's going to make a lot of of, uh, of uh, firewall administrators very happy <laughs> because yeah. then you can say, "Yes, this this is the IP address that you can put into your firewall that will allow access to that yeah. legacy database, right?" And Rather you can than govern all the nodes access in the to that, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You can govern access to that egress policy just the same way that you would define, uh, you know, access to that entity already. I mean, like you could define that as a cluster wide policy which only admins would have access to, or you could define that as a number of different ways inside of your Kubernetes environment. I don't know that we have time to get into, but but yeah, that's just some of the stuff that we can do with network policy that is above and beyond like what we see. Yeah, very cool, very cool. And I guess that F FQDN policy, you know, would block all those outbound calls to reverse shell.com, right? Yeah, <laughs> right, exactly. Um, all right. So, um, as we get ready to wrap up, uh, I'm, I'm really keen on making sure that listeners have some practical resources to get started. So if you were talking to somebody, you know, maybe they're, they're reasonably familiar with Kubernetes, but they've not messed with Cilium. Um, and they want to, they want to, you know, take it for a spin. You know, what's the, what's the best way to, for them to get started? The best way for them to get started is go to Cilium.io. Cilium.io has a number of really great resources in it. Um, right at the top of the page, it'll say, it'll give you a, a link to what is Cilium, which will tell you just about kind of some of the similar stuff that I was just talking to you about. You can also join our Slack. Um, you can also see our Echo live stream where we're talking about different things in eBPF and Cilium that are happening in the space. And then if you scroll down the page a bit, you'll find this uh, section called Discover Cilium. And in there, we have a weekly interactive Cilium introduction and live Q&A with somebody like myself or Thomas Graff or Liz Rice. And you can just come ask us questions live. And when you book that, you're, you're able to, that, that time will be set up and you'll be invited. And we look forward to seeing you there. Next to that, we also have a weekly community install fest where if you're trying to get started with Cilium and you're just having trouble getting it deployed or what have you, you could definitely come just join us and we'll walk you through getting it installed and working in your environment. And we could figure out from there, like, you know, what makes sense for you? Like, if, like is that enough? Was it just getting it started so you can kick the tires and figure out like how it all works? Or did you want to work through some tutorials to like maybe some of the more common use cases for things like network policy um, and those sorts of things? Very cool. Lots of resources. So that's good. Um, and, and listeners, I'll have links to all this stuff in the show notes. So you can just click away and start exploring stuff to your heart's content. All right. So I want to be mindful of your time, Duffy. I've, I've taken enough of your evening and I appreciate that. Uh, but I also want to be mindful of my uh, listeners' time. So as we wrap up, just tell the listeners again how and where they can find you online. So I'm everywhere as Maui Lion. I grew up in Maui, Hawaii, and I like big cats. And so if you look me up 
on Kubernetes Slack or Cilium or the Cilium Slack or on Twitter, anywhere else. I'm always M A U I L I O N. Got it. Although I think I'm I'm you know partial to Joe Beta's uh, Tolkien esque um, pronunciation. Molion. Molion, right? As if it was the Maui lion. You know, I just I don't know. It seems I more. I didn't know he was actually talking to me. Like this was this is before I was working at Heptio. Before I joined Heptio, I was like checking out the TGIK8 live stream, which if you're interested in Kubernetes, is still a great live stream. It's going strong. Um, it's TGIK.io. And this is before I joined Heptio. And I was, you know, Joe was having trouble with some YAML files because he was working on Kubernetes. And that's that's what you do when you're working on Kubernetes. And I was like, Joe, you need to name the other port. Like if you're trying to define more than one port in a service, you have to give them names. And he's like, oh, oh thank you, Mawillian. And I'm like, what? You're welcome, I think, but I'm, yes. I'm not sure. He's not the only one that does that, though. Apparently, like, I, I see it as Maui Lang because I'm the one that invented it, but, like, a lot of people see it a different way. You know? I did not see it as Maui Lang until after you told me. So I was, I was more in the Joe Beta camp. So there yeah. you go. But anyway, nevertheless, the spelling is the same. The pronunciation may be different, but you can find Duffy as Maui Lion and any number of uh, online forums. So be sure and go give him a follow. Uh, I think you will be uh, pleased at how much you will learn. Um, so Duffy, thanks so much for being on the show today. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right. And uh, that's it for this episode listeners. I want to thank you again for joining me, Scott Lowe, for another episode of the full stack journey podcast. Um, you know, I'd love to hear feedback from listeners. So if you have some feedback on this episode or any episode of the podcast, feel free to reach out to me. Um, you can uh, tweet the podcast directly at FSJ podcast on Twitter Feel free to reach out to me directly at Scott underscore low on Twitter, or you can also find me in a number of community slacks, Kubernetes, Cilium. Um, I hang out there as well. So feel free to uh, look me up and uh, be happy to chat with you and, uh, and, you know, hear what you have to say about the show and how I can make it better. Love to hear from listeners. Uh, this has been the full stack journey podcast where too much learning is never enough. <laughs>